Well, good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. That's on page 398 if you are using the Pew Bible. Now, on the night of April 14, 1912, the SS Californian encountered an ice field in the North Atlantic Sea around 7 p.m. in the evening. The crew of the California sent out a warning message to nearby ships of the danger and then decided that it would be prudent for them to stop for the night so that they would avoid the risk of hitting an iceberg. By 11.30 that evening, they had turned off their wireless communications and the captain, Captain Stanley Lord, went to bed. Ten minutes later, the Titanic collided with an iceberg five miles away. A little after midnight, the crew of the Californian began to see distress rockets being fired off in the distance, and the captain was duly informed, but he dismissed the rockets as probably just intercommunication between different company ships, and therefore it was not their concern. The crew of the Californian watched as the lights on the Titanic five miles away flickered, and appeared to shift in an odd manner throughout the night. But by 2 a.m. it appeared that the Titanic had moved out of the area because they could no longer see the lights or rockets being fired. At 5.30 a.m., Captain Stanley Lord woke up and finally ordered the Californian to the last known position of the Titanic, only to find a field of wreckage. There were no survivors for them to rescue. Today, we come to the question of how we might be a people who act in faith. How we make decisions to brave the venture of moving forward and overcome the inertia of inaction. How we might avoid the folly of Captain Stanley Lord, whose inaction may have cost hundreds of lives. In our passage for this morning, we come to Nehemiah's decision to act in faith on behalf of God's kingdom. As you remember from last week, Nehemiah has received a report of the sad state of the city of Jerusalem. That the wall surrounding Jerusalem continues to be in wreckage. He's living in Persia as a member of the exiled community of Jews. And his heart goes out to his brethren in Israel who are suffering. And so what does he do? Well, first, what does he do first? He prays. Right? That's what we saw last week. First, he prays. And in particular, at the end of his prayer, he asked for an opportunity to receive favor in the eyes of the Persian king. Because as chapter 1 ends, we see that he is the cupbearer in service to the king. And what we'll see in our text this morning is that if we would be a people who act in faith, then we must be a people who are willing to take the risk of acting. We must be willing to count the cost of acting. And the final thing that we will see is that we must trust God with the outcome of our actions. So here now, 
the word of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you now and we ask that you would guide us by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light that in your truth we might find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Amen. As we come to our text for this morning, it's important for us to understand the dire situation that Nehemiah found himself in as he stood before Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. You see, Nehemiah desired to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians a century prior. However, this was against the king's own explicit policy that walls were not to be rebuilt. You see, the Persians were happy to allow and even fund the reestablishment of local worship practices. They were willing to allow communities like Israel to rebuild their temples and to re-engage in worship practices. Their underlying polytheistic pagan assumption was that happy local deities would mean a peaceful empire. However, They were not real keen on allowing their subjects to build walls and fortifications. Who are these walls designed to repel? Why do you need to fortify your city? Nehemiah had been praying now for over four months that God would move in such a way that the walls would be rebuilt. And he comes before the king In service as the cupbearer, and we read in verse 2, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why is Nehemiah afraid? Well, first, the king's servants were to be nothing but happy in his presence. Two, He is afraid because he is in opposition to the king's decree not to allow the Jews to rebuild. And third, he's afraid because for the past four months, he's been praying that God would do something to change the situation. And he realizes that this is God's answer to his prayer. And if he would act in faith, he is going to have to act now. There's a very real possibility that Nehemiah will be viewed as a traitor, as a rebel, as he tells King Artaxerxes why it is that he is sad. Right? I think your policy on not rebuilding the wall is wrong. And I want to go and build a military fortification around a city that is under your control. What do you think about that? No wonder he's afraid. So how does he trust God and act in the midst of this fear? Well, we see in verse 4 that he quickly prays one last time. He's been praying for four months. It becomes his habit. And he shoots up a quick prayer, submitting to God that God would help him. And then he takes the risk. He knows full well that his action might get him killed. But he takes the risk because to not act would mean to be continued in suffering of God's people. Theologically, we know that God is sovereign. And therefore, there is nothing that truly equates to chance in this world. Nevertheless, we are not omniscient. We are not omnipotent. And so there are times when we won't know the outcome of our actions. And every time we act, it will carry with it the risk of failure or loss or injury or even of death. Risk is just an inherent part of all of our actions here on earth because we are not God. 
And therefore, it's easier just to sit back. It's easier to venture nothing in this life. But nothing will be accomplished on behalf of God's kingdom if His people are not willing to pray for God to do great things and then take the risk of being the answer to that prayer. It's important to note that Nehemiah does not take a haphazard risk here. He has been praying for four months. He speaks respectfully to the king. He has a plan to present to the king. So when the king says, how long is it going to take? He knows what he's going to ask. But it is a risk nonetheless. And if we would act in faith, then we're going to have to be willing to do things that might fail. You might share the gospel with your neighbor only to have them reject you and stop inviting you over for dinner. You might serve the poor in our community only to have them waste your money and your time. You might start a Bible study and have nobody come. Failure can and does happen. But we must still act. We must still obey the will of our God and take the risk to act, knowing that it's better to have braved a venture on God than to have sat on your couch and binge-watched the office for the third time this year. If we would obey God's direction and see His kingdom come, then we're going to have to be a people who get over our fear of failure and take the risk of acting. Now we see that the Lord blessed Nehemiah's risk and the king grants Nehemiah what he asked. He travels to Israel and soon realizes that having the king on board was just the first step in this process of rebuilding the wall. As we read through all he encounters in verses 9 through 16, we might assume he would be asking himself, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? And this is the second thing that we see in our text concerning acting in faith. You see, to act in faith, you need to be willing to take the risk. And the next thing is that you need to count the cost of acting. When Jesus was teaching his disciples what it means to follow him, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. You see, there's not only a risk when we act in faith, but there's also a cost of following our Lord in faith. Jesus puts this cost in the perspective of his own sacrifice. For him to obey the will of his father, to save a people to himself, Jesus had to be willing to pay the price, to go the full way. He had to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, shedding his blood to pay the penalty for our rebellion. He was mocked, he was opposed, he was abandoned, but he knew the cost and he was willing to pay the cost that God's kingdom might come. In our passage, we see that Nehemiah must count the cost of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. 
And the first cause that he encounters is opposition from the surrounding governors. Those who are in charge of the neighboring regions around Jerusalem are not thrilled about the idea of a defensible Jerusalem. And so the text tells us in verse 10 that they were greatly displeased with Nehemiah's plan. And in verse 19, we read that they jeered at the work and accused them of rebellion. Nehemiah has to count the cost of constant opposition to the work of God's kingdom. And so too must we. If we would act in faith, we must know that there will be those who oppose us the whole way. The next thing that we see is that Nehemiah takes an inventory of the rebuilding project itself. In verses 11 through 16, Nehemiah does this inspection, the secret inspection of the wall. And everything that he has heard is true. The wall is broken down. It's burned. This is no afternoon DIY. This project's going to take time and resources and expertise. The cost is going to be high. And if we are going to act in faith, we're going to have to be a people who are willing to look at the true cost of choosing Christ, of taking up our cross, and of following after Him. You see, salvation costs you absolutely nothing. Jesus counted the cost of saving you from your sin and he paid it. By your works, you earn death and eternal condemnation. But Christ's work for you, he earned life and everlasting enjoyment of God. He paid the full cost of your salvation. He suffered the penalty of death so that we would not have to suffer the penalty of eternal death. And those who are in Christ by faith have been given this. But even though salvation costs you nothing, it's all of His grace, following after Jesus Christ will cost you everything. There is a spiritual battle that will have to be waged. There is a conflict that is going to have to be confronted. There are investments of time and expertise and, yes, money that will have to be made. And to act in faith means that you are willing to count the cost of taking up your cross and you willingly choose to follow after Christ. Hebrews 11 is referred to as the hall of faith. You read through it, you'll see that it outlines how God's people throughout history have acted in faith. It tells of Abraham leaving his homeland, of his willingness to offer his son Isaac because he had faith that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. It tells us of Jacob and Joseph and Moses and many others. And the point of this chapter is to illustrate what it means to truly act in faith, to believe the word of God and to act upon it. At the very beginning of the chapter, it defines what faith is. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It continues, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
if we would act in faith, we must take the risk, we must count the cost, and we must trust the outcome of our actions to God. That is, we must have assurance of the things hoped for. We must have the conviction of things that are not seen. We must believe that God will reward us if we seek after Him. Nehemiah has taken the risk to act. He's counted the cost. And the final thing that he does is that he trusts the outcome to God. Up to this point, Nehemiah has been somewhat secretive about his mission. The text tells us that Nehemiah had not told the Jews, the nobles, the priests, the officials, really just the people who are going to do the work, he hadn't told them what he was up to. But in verses 17 through 20, he reveals the plan. He tells them of all that has happened and how God has blessed him, how God's hand has been upon him. And here's the climax of the story. We might have thought it was all the way at the beginning when he presented his plan to the king. But really, this is the crux of the story. Will God's people take up the call to rebuild? Nehemiah could deal with external dissent. But if the people of God won't follow the vision and do the work, then all is lost. The load cannot be carried by one man alone. And in verse 18, we see their response. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. There's a risk. There is a cost. But God will ensure the outcome. Even as Nehemiah says in verse 20, in response to the surrounding governor's threats, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build yes there's risk yes there's cost but ultimately god will cause his kingdom purposes to prosper and one day the knowledge of the glory of the lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea One day, every knee will bow and confess that the Lord is Jesus Christ. These are not conditional. Jesus Christ will come and He will reign forever. The pessimism that so permeates the evangelical church today is just a masquerade of wisdom and caution. But it's not rooted in true faith. God's kingdom is marching on. There is a fight. There is a cost. But there is also a victory. Jesus has won that victory for us. He bought His sheep with His infinitely valuable blood. He went to the grave and on the third day He rose from the dead, defeating all His and our enemies. And now we are calling His sheep into the fold, awaiting the day when He will return to establish His eternal kingdom. God will make this work prosper. There will be voices of dissent. There will be spiritual battles to be waged. But the decisive battle has already been won. This world belongs to Christ. And He will receive the reward of His suffering and the spoils of His victory. And this is how we overcome the inertia of inaction. 
and begin to act in faith for the sake of God's kingdom. We take the risk, we count the cost, and we trust that because Jesus Christ has died, because Jesus Christ has risen, because Jesus Christ will come again, that all of God's purposes will be accomplished. In my opening illustration, I said that when the Californian arrived at the site of the Titanic sinking, there were no survivors for them to rescue. And this is true. But there were survivors. There were hundreds who were saved from death. But how? Well, when the distress signal went out and the Californian ignored, the Carpathian responded. Whereas the Californian was only five miles away, the Carpathian was over 60 miles away when it received this distress call. When the SOS was received, Captain Arthur Rostrum quickly realized the severity of the situation and he knew that he must act now. Immediately, he set the ship towards the Titanic, full steam ahead. He ordered that the steam that was going to the cabin's radiators that were warming the passengers' cabins be diverted back to the engine so that they could gain extra speed, which ultimately cut an hour off of their time. He emptied the cabins and transformed them into receiving stations for survivors. He ordered that soup would be prepared. He ordered dining halls to be converted into makeshift hospitals. And as the vessel was blazing through the dark of the North Atlantic, it was being transformed from a luxury liner into a rescue ship. But there was great risk in this action. Rostrum was taking his crew and his passengers into the middle of an ice field in the middle of the night. The engineers down in the engine room were cautioning that the whole ship might blow from the excess pressure of the diverted steam. And they were urging Rostrum to slow down, that it was mad to go forward like this. But Rostrum knew that every moment mattered. He knew that there were souls who were perishing in the icy waters and he had to act now. Rostrum was a man who believed in the providence of God. He was a man of faith who trusted in God's guidance and protection. In reflecting upon this perilous race through the night, he says that he was in constant prayer, even as Nehemiah was throwing prayers up as he was going before the king. And Rostrum said that he was trusting that another hand than mine was on the helm. They arrived at the last location of the Titanic by 4 a.m., By this time, the Titanic had already fallen to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Nevertheless, there were hundreds of survivors in life rafts and floating on wreckage. And so feverishly, they began the work of rescuing, pulling these people out of the ocean and bringing them on to the salvation of their ship. They would have all died if it had not been for Rostrum's willingness to act. And the question that we have to ask this morning is, will Rivermont be the Californian or the Carpathian? We have the gospel of the salvation of souls through Jesus Christ. 
We have the only hope of a dying world. There is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one will come to the Father except through Him. He is the ark against the storm of the flood. And there are souls perishing without hope, without Christ. And we have the call to go forth into this world and see them saved. So what will we do? Will we go to our family with the gospel? Will you go to your neighbors and to your co-workers with the gospel? Will we go to our Rivermont neighborhood with the gospel? Will we go to the nations with Christ and Him crucified? We cannot become inactive. We cannot allow the inertia of comfort to keep us from the work that is before us. But we must be willing to take the risk, to count the cost, and to trust that as we go forward in faith, God will save His people. So church, don't be the Californian. Be the Carpathian. And go forward acting in faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, your word teaches us that the fields are white for harvest. Pray that the Lord of the harvest might thrust workers into the fields. Oh, God, would you cause your word to overcome the inertia of our lives that we might be thrust forth proclaiming the gospel that many souls might be saved. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.